As was mentioned already, we are thankful that we have been given the privilege of assembling this evening. Things are well with you and me as they are in such a way that we've chosen to invest and to devote a portion of our Sunday in a second opportunity of offering our heartfelt praise unto the God of heaven. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. To borrow the wording of Psalm 139, verse number 14. You may have already noticed, and we'll certainly make reference to, that 24th chapter of 2 Samuel tonight. So I hope that you'll be turning in your Bible to that location, and we will thus consider a lesson entitled, No Value Without Cost. No value without cost. It may well be that the particular setting of this passage is one that has occasioned an interesting degree of discussion, and it's one that before we're finished tonight, we'll see some interesting consequences about the events that took place in this chapter. As far as some introductory material on this slide before you, I've invited you to consider, inasmuch as our desire to offer to God our worship this evening, and frequently the Bible discusses the significance of that, you may at least give some passing thought. We know that the time did finally come when a temple was constructed in the Old Testament. Now, the children of Israel had worshipped for a long, long time in the tabernacle prior to the existence of that temple. And although it's true that David wished to in fact construct it, God told him it was not to be so, First Chronicles 28. But his son Solomon was to be the one that would finally construct that temple and erect that building wherein a fixed place of worship would take place. The question might well be, where did the land come from on which the temple was built? How did it come to be the possession of the king David such that the temple could be built there? Well, tonight, why don't we see if we could give some thought to the answer to that question. We'll do so under the heading of this passage, No Value Without Cost. You could see on that slide that quite often, no cost is used as a phrase that sounds really good. A person may refer to a no-cost loan or perhaps a no-cost mortgage. Many times when we hear that phrase, we get a bit excited. It's not going to cost me anything. I can obtain this service or I can obtain this particular beneficial matter at no cost to me. But may I be quick to say that sometimes you get what you pay for. There are times that in fact what doesn't cost you anything is not worth anything either. And I'm sure we've all had the experience quite often of obtaining something that wasn't as good as what it sounded as though it might end up being. Tonight, we're going to revisit that under the banner of 2 Samuel 24. And so as we close that slide, we'll also have the opportunity to apply some of those principles to even our knowledge of Christianity. At this point, let me devote a bit of time to the setting, that is to say the background and the development of this chapter. And upon the conclusion of that then, we'll be ready to look at a few of the consequences and lessons that we might extract from it. But the scene begins, as you can say, uh, as you can note on that slide, we would all readily agree because the Word of God details it that David indeed was a man after God's own heart. He is spoken of at times with a great deg degree of respect. You may notice both in Acts chapter 13 as well as in 1 Samuel 13 
we find that wonderful description of the kind of man that David was. But we would certainly quickly realize that David had his imperfections. And he also had his shortcomings, and he had his sins. We know he committed murder. We know that he committed adultery. We know that he encouraged drunkenness in the life of other people. Now, you can't do that without being guilty of it yourself. Doesn't the Word of God remind us you can endorse an evil without being a partaker of it? Ephesians 5, 8. And so it is that David certainly had his shortcomings. But one we might not be so quick to remember is the one that begins this chapter. In addition to those scenes I mentioned earlier, and that one's probably more familiar, we know what happened with Bathsheba. But isn't it true in this chapter? Let me begin reading in verse number 1 and notice what David did. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. I might be quick to say this scene is also recorded in 1 Chronicles 21. And in fact, the wording of this 1 Chronicles passage in some ways is a little bit more revealing. And by that I mean it clarifies a few points. Verse number 1 in this passage, notice, seems to indicate that God moved David to number Israel. In other words, it was God's idea. It was not. The First Chronicles passage tells us it was Satan's idea. That is to say, Satan motivated David to number Israel. He encouraged it, even in terms of the matter opposing the regarded wisdom of God. The devil encouraged David to do this. Let's notice what David did. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. David's desire, you see, he wanted an accurate census of the fighting men in Israel because he was giving his attention to that number. Rather than trusting God to deliver Israel, rather than trusting God's might and His wisdom and His power for deliverance, David was trusting in the number of his men. Now, how often had God delivered Israel in days prior to this? How often had Israel, though fewer in number than their enemy, how often had it been that God had in fact given them triumph over their adversaries? It had been many. David had fallen here into the trap of looking to what he had, looking to what he in fact had access to. In fact, verse number 3 will go on to say, and Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people, how many soever they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my Lord the king may see it. But why doth my Lord the king delight in this thing? Even Joab, David's military general, said, David, don't do this. Don't you know that God will be with us as long as we serve Him, and He will provide the number we need for victory. Don't trust in the census you're about to take. Inasmuch as Joab encouraged David not to do this, we all remember, of course, the king had the final say. And verse 4 will now detail this. Notwithstanding, 
The king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host, and Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. So although Joab and the other captains had encouraged David not to do this, David demanded it, and so it was that it had to be so. As you can see on that slide, with the character of this numbering now before them, look at the effort that it took and look, if you please, at the aftermath of it. Beginning in verse number 5, we have a record of the places that Joab and the others went in the effort to number the Israelites. They passed over Jordan and pitched an arrow air on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river of Gad and toward Jazer. As you come, for example, to verse number 8, So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. You quickly observe, nine months and twenty days, almost three-quarters of a year is how long it took them to complete this census, to complete this numbering of the fighting men in Israel. The next verse then says it like this, Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now you can tell the numbers were sizable, those two numbers that were just listed. And perhaps in light of that, it would have been easy then for a king to place his confidence, we can take care of our enemies, we can overwhelm them due to these numbers. I might suggest that as you look at the numbers listed in the Chronicles, First Chronicles 21, they are listed slightly differently. At this point, as you revisit the scene again in Second Chronicles 24, you come to the bottom of that slide which leads to the next. And the next thought is this one. Remember, Joab encouraged David not to do it. Don't trust in this census. Trust in God. However, David did not learn his lesson until after the census had been taken. And therefore, we come to verse number 10. And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. Notice the language. It was after they returned that David realized his error. He understood the sinfulness of it. Please note again the language. It wasn't just a bad idea. It was a sin. And verse 10 goes on to describe it like this. David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have, in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Quite often we're so impressed with David. Even after he made a mistake... Quite often, he was quick to say, I sinned. He didn't try to cover it up or make an excuse for it or justify it. He simply admitted it. I failed. I acted foolishly. I should not have done it. Please forgive me. I would encourage us as people that would please God to ever have a mentality like that. To understand and not try to defend our position, but God, I had good reason for this. God, this other, encourage me in that way. That's not it. It's simply to acknowledge, I made the decision, I made the choice, and I, I chose foolishly. We must at least admire David 
after the fact in regard to that choice because he owned up to what he did. Therefore, verse number 12 says, Go and say unto... I'm sorry, verse 11. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying... So with David's prayer of penitence and his prayer regarding the foolishness of the decision he had made, God gave some messages to David, to the prophet Gad. Gad was to come to David and share this message with him. We might note something else that will be a valiant lesson here in just a moment. Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. David had sinned. Even though David had made penitence for it, there were consequences to it. There were consequences that had to be addressed. And now God says, David, three things. You pick one of them. And this is going to happen to you. What were they? Next verse. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies, while they pursue thee, or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Those sound like very difficult choices, don't they? Now you'll notice on the slide, I chose the wording based on the First Chronicles passage, which again is slightly different in one of them. But again, the choices that David had to choose between were these. First of all, three years of famine in the land. David could pick that one as the punishment for that which he had done. But the second choice, three months you could be on the run fleeing from your enemies. He could pick that one. Or thirdly, three days pestilence. Now as you ponder that choice, which would you have made? What choice would I have made? I believe it's fair to say when you think about three years, three months, three days, I'm sure our attention might have moved in a direction like David's did. Let's get this over with in three days. Let's cut this as short as possible. Let's see what David selected. Verse number 14, David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of men. With David's desire not to fall into the hand of men, that ruled out the three months one. And it also ruled out the three years one. That mean, in essence, by the language he was using, that he was going to pick the three days of pestilence. And therefore, Gad understood it. In verse 15 it says, So the Lord sent a pestilence, upon Israel from the morning, even to the time appointed, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. David's sin, you see, in, his, in, his, in light of his choice to follow what Satan had encouraged, and the kind of consequence and aftermath that that had had apparently for himself as well as for others, and their choices too. 70,000 died. I wonder how David reacted in light of this. To realize that your foolishness, the choice you made, 
And the impact that had on others had led ultimately to the death of 70,000 of your fellow countrymen. Verse number 16 says, And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Now, as we learn again in the Chronicles passage, David had the privilege, in some sense, of seeing this, destruct, this destroying angel. And he could see this angel perched over Jerusalem, ready to continue the onslaught of this pestilence. In fact, in verse number 17, David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people. David witnessed some of this firsthand as he watched it happening and observed that it was about to even become even greater. David said, Lo, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. David began to intercede for the people of Israel. I'm the one who made the primary decision, he said. I'm the one who has acted in the primary wicked way. They are merely the ones that followed what I said. Please stop and let me be the one. Me and my father's house, put thy weight, put thy punishment upon us. One by one, as these matters unfolded, can't you just imagine that when David began this numbering, Surely he would never have imagined it to turn out this way. Sometimes have you and I ever been involved in something and made a decision and we never would have dreamed it would turn out as bad as it did. We would never have imagined that the devil, perhaps by his cleverness, could have worked it out in your life and mine to bring about the evil, the sadness, the heartache, the disappointment that ultimately it did. Maybe in time as we realize the impact our decision may have had upon others, even our family members, we might come to beg God if we could undo just part of it. You need to notice David pled for the people on this occasion, and he begged for it to all rest upon him and his, and his household. Surely as we reflect upon it, let's notice how verse 18 proceeds. Gad, that same seer, the prophet of the day, came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So you'll notice, God in fact heard what David's reply was. And we notice something interesting. Verse number 18 had sent through Gad to David a message, You go up, and in the course of the moment you build an altar. Now on the slide, we're perhaps going to ask, what about the construction of this altar and the amount of time that would have been involved in it? Verse number 19, And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. Now at this point, notice that the God of heaven heard the petition of David. And in fact, God gave the order to the angel to stop that destruction, 
to stay that hand of execution, if you please. But he gave to David this instruction, you construct an altar. And it was at the place where this angel had been seen by David, the threshing floor of Aruna. Now you may notice on the slide that I've chosen to, to call the gentleman's name by the way it appears in the Chronicles. He's called Ornan there. Now that's the same as the first, the second Samuel man, Aruna, but he's called Ornan, the Jebusite. With regard to where this angel was seen and the aftermath of it, may I continue reading? You'll notice that then David and his entourage came to this location, and Ornan was somewhat puzzled. Why is the king coming to my property? Why is he coming to my location? In fact, in verse number 20, Ornan went out and bowed himself before David. And now verse 21, Ornan or Aruna said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. David came with a particular message. He needed to build this altar as he had been instructed to do it. But again, that wasn't his property. It didn't belong to him. It belonged to Ornan. And so it was that David, in verse number 21, I came to buy the threshing floor. I came to buy some of your land. At first sight, you, in fact, may put yourself in Ornan's position. If the king came and said, I need a small piece of your land, or I need some element of it, and I'd like to purchase it, would we be happy to sell? Verse number 22 says that Aruna said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did Aruna as a king give unto the king. And Aruna said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. If you and I may paraphrase, Ornan said, Take it. Here's some oxen. I'll be happy for you to have them too. Take them and offer what you need to offer. Here's even instruments that you need to construct the altar. Did you notice Ornan offered the animal? He offered the instruments to build the altar. He offered everything that was required to carry out that. And the text even says that Aruna behaved in some way as a king, offering to David anything that David needed at this moment. Perhaps that sounds wonderful. Perhaps that sounds exactly what one would have hoped would take place. But David's reply is very interesting. What did David say in regard to the offer that Ornan made? Verse number 24, And the king, that's David, said unto Aruna, Nay, but I will surely bite of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. Did you notice David said, No, I will not take them. I will buy them, but I won't take them for nothing. And his reasoning was this. I will not offer burnt offerings, burnt sacrifices, 
unto the God of heaven of that which cost me nothing. Isn't that an interesting principle? Isn't it a thought-provoking expression? Don't you suppose that's why the Holy Spirit chose to include that of all things in the Bible? David said, No, I won't take it for free, but I'll be happy to purchase it. Now that verse ended by saying that David gave him 50 shekels of silver. You may notice the number I list on the slide is different. Again, the chronicler tells us he paid 600 shekels of gold, which is quite a bit more than 50 shekels of silver. Now the difference being, you'll notice that we're told in verse 24 what the 50 shekels of silver bought. It bought the threshing floor and the oxen. Nothing is said about the greater parcel of land upon which that threshing floor stood, and the chronicler tells us that number. David paid an additional sum, the sum total being 600 shekels of gold for not only the oxen, the threshing floor, but that sizable piece of land that Ornan owned that would one day be the place where Solomon would build the temple. That's how that came to be. That's how that land came to be under the possession, you see, of David's household. He bought it of Ornan under the setting of the scene we've just studied about tonight. And it was there that Solomon built that temple several years into the future. As you and I close that slide, it begs a few observations that I've entitled Cost and Value. It is intriguing then to ponder the words that David utilized. Even in Christianity, isn't it true that value and cost are very interesting ideas and quite frankly, very thought-provoking in many ways. What you and I would call Christianity cost Jesus Christ everything. He voluntarily gave His life. Didn't He Himself say in John 10, 17, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep? And He did. Hebrews 2 verse 9 affirms that He tasted of death for every man. It cost our Savior everything. He had been in heaven, and He chose to give that up. Live here among men, appreciating the toils and the difficulties and the angst of men. He understood what it was like to be blasphemed and ridiculed and insulted and persecuted. He knew what it was like to have so little from a physical standpoint. He knew all of that. What if he had chosen to say to the Father, No, but I like it here in heaven. I don't think I'll go. You and I would have been damned in hell. would have been nothing we could have done about it. But Jesus gave up all of that, and thus, in light of Christianity, costing Him everything, He purchased the church with His blood. And in that church are people who love the Lord, people who love His Word, and people who are happy to die for His cause, if that's what it takes. Those who you see also realize the prominence and power of texts like this one. Anyone that would come after the Lord must deny himself take up his cross daily, and follow him, Luke 9, 23. No wonder in that connection, it is that blood of Christ by which we're redeemed, 1 Peter chapter 1 reminds us. What about if we then apply some of those thoughts to religion in general? Does your religion cost you anything? Does it cost me anything? 
In the same way that David said, I'll not offer to God that which costs me nothing. We too should realize if our religion doesn't cost us something, it's not worth anything either. May I say again, if it doesn't cost me something, then it isn't worth anything. Our religion, you see, our devotion to Christ must be supreme to the extent that it leads us to some applications that might be used to close our lesson tonight. Jesus said that you and I are to love Him and the kingdom above all else. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things that will be added to you. We read that in Matthew 6, 33. So with regard, for instance, to my religion and to yours, does it cause you and I to make some decisions or to lose some things we otherwise would not have lost? What about certain associations with certain friends because of what they stand for and what they do? Do I cut off my close friendship with them? Aren't we told that evil communications corrupt good manners? 1 Corinthians 15, 33. You see, in that case, my religion is costing me something. What about notoriety? The world loves pomp and circumstance, fame, fortune, and notoriety. Does my devotion to Christ, has it cost me some of that? I think it's safe to say a Christian is not likely to be the most popular person in the state. Probably not likely to be the most popular person in the community because that person won't support many of the things that the devil encourages a whole host of others to support. My religion ought to be costing me something. David affirmed, if it doesn't cost me something, it's not worth anything either. And therefore, he said, no, I won't take it, but I'll be happy to buy it. What about tonight? What about you and me? Is our devotion to Christ costing me something? The New Testament calls it sacrifice. You can see near the bottom of that slide that we're told a number of things will be evident consequences. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Did you note the definitiveness of that in 2 Timothy 3.12? And in the book of Revelation, we see other examples attached to much the same way. As we close this lesson tonight, we have seen an interesting Old Testament pattern that takes us back to the title of the lesson. No value without cost. And so today, under the banner of the Jesus Christ our Lord, we recognize we happily relinquish devotion to this world because this world is not our home. And we, of course, have our citizenship somewhere else. In Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven. And we thus are happy to pay our devotion to Christ so that we can look forward to being with Him that day. Tonight, where does your religion and mine stand in these matters? No cost. You see, in light of the value that we appreciate, if there's no cost, there isn't any value. As we summarize this lesson on this final slide, all it does is by quotation of what David asserted, Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord of that which hath cost me nothing. Can't we be thankful for the leadership and instruction of the Word of God 
That reminds us that just as the Lord gave all, He demands that we give all in service to Him. If you love me, He said, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. Didn't He not say on another occasion, No man hath given up lands or houses or the other things the Lord mentioned in Luke chapter 6 that we'll not receive far greater in this life and in the life to come. He'll make sure you see that we are rewarded for our devotion to Him tonight. Are you and I faithful Christians? Those who serve the Lord out of a willing heart, to borrow the wording of Leviticus 1 verse 3. If so, may we continue that devotion, but if not, why not come to the Lord? David realized many of the truths we've highlighted in our study tonight. And if you need to make repentance in your life, if I do in mine, we have an opportunity and convenience to do that now. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. If we could be of service in assistance to anybody in a public way, we'd like to use this as an opportune time inviting you to come while together we stand and while we sing.